This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday Mailbag edition. Specialer than ever, maybe, because Andrew is well and back. I am still well and still back. We are Motley Fool Money. Mr. Page, how are you? Very good. Very good. Keen to, keen to get into some questions. I'm glad, mate. The first question on my list, I, I had oh. someone's... What? Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. I misjudged. Continue. I'm just wondering why you're laughing. I don't know. I don't know. Please continue. Okay. All right. Uh, a question here from, from, from Scott who, who says, what is strongman? Oh, see, that's why I laughed. And you knew full well. <laughs> I you did knew know full, full well. well. It's all about the theatre, Mr. Page. It's all about the theatre. <laughs> uh, private online investment club. As they say in the movie Gladiator, are you not entertained? <laughs> Probably not actually a good point. Uh, thank you for sharing that with me. Let's get You're straight welcome. to the questions, mate. One from Kira who says, Hi, gents. My name is Kira. And yes, please feel free to call this out on the podcast machine. Have I mentioned they like the podcast machine, Andrew? Like the podcast it's machine. taken off. Set an a trend. Avid, as an avid listener to your podcasts, which are great, by the way, I have a question or topic for discussion, please. We hear about the 2,000-odd companies listed on the ASX that we can choose from. However, I've come across some impressive and talented leaders who play important roles in private companies, which leads me down a rabbit hole towards private equity. Given the Australian Sovereign Fund currently has 16% of its value in PE, this is the future fund, should a mum investor, Kira's female, which I love, and a mum, thank you, Kira, also be considering this option too, over and above the usual ETFs and direct holdings? And if so... How would one go about identifying and comparing firms, products, etc.? Could you please start with the basics, i.e. is investing in PE the same as investing in a managed fund? I gather fees will be higher than your standard ETF, but is there complexity here that you could cut through? I appreciate the quick answer is just get an ETF, and I can see the appeal of cheaper and easier. However, this is a great platform to go a little deeper and challenge preconceptions. I love it, Kira. Particularly private equity, which has old money vibes that you somehow need to be in the figurative boys club to know which one to invest in. In the spirit of democratizing access to building long-term wealth, are we missing a trick by only looking at the publicly listed managed fund type options? Thanks in advance, Kira. I love it, Kira. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being one of our many, but not large enough group of female listeners. Um, thank you for sending in your question too, mate. I love, I love the mum investor. Uh, that's great, rather mum investor. The mum investor, that's brilliant. Uh, Ram, private equity. You're not going to just eh. have to buy an ETF, are you? Nah, I wouldn't even bother, frankly. I mean, there, there's there's all kinds of asset classes and there is a school of thought that you should have a little bit of everything. Um, I just don't think it's necessary. I look, the evidence, I think, speaks very loudly. I mean, one of, one of the great sort of sacred cows forever was the 60-40 <laughs> portfolio, right? 60% equities, 40% bonds. Like, why? Why would I hamstrung myself with 40% government debt, low-yielding... <laughs> uh, not pass like hard pass yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of financial planners who are just falling off their chairs <laughs> uh, you know and different strokes for different folks and I can't you know it can't be a blanket kind of statement but for, for most people no you don't need it and you certainly don't need that much yeah. um, private equity uh, <laughs> just has a very different raison d'etre to, to other sort of um, uh, investment mandates really they're, they're not they're basically looking to come in buy cheap usually with leverage strip the guts out of it mm. refloat it 
you know, they're not they're not there for a long time. They're there for a good time, <laughs> and and they've got a bad reputation, frankly. Yeah. Now, yeah. again, anyone from private equity who happens to be listening, I, I know you're the exception to the rule, and there are exceptions to the rule. But for most part, you know, they look at all the companies that have come onto the ASX that have come out of private equity hands. They haven't always gone on that well. We've we've joked before is if you mm. made me or you uh, CEO of a company, we could make the next few years results fantastic. It's like yeah. cutting the guts of the thing out and just, you know, no costs, no investment. Profits are going to look pretty good because margins are going to go up, you know, but it just, it just, it, it has a consequence. And I'm okay, being- but let me, let me, well, let me throw that back at you though. You, okay. you wouldn't want to buy from private equity, but if you were the bloke who could list that piece of rubbish on the ASX at an elevated price and make a fortune doing it, wouldn't you want to be in on that game? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a bit like the, um, except if you're assuming that this is just a guaranteed way to make money. Now, I haven't seen any analysis on this, but anecdotally, I know there's plenty of private equity firms that have just done a horrible, horrendous job. Like right. awful, awful right. performance, right? It, it's like the mythology of short sellers. You know, oh, that's the smart money. They always get it right. No, they don't. They get it wrong all the time. So does private equity. So the, the answer, the frustrating answer is it depends. If you give me the opportunity to invest with an incredibly savvy, capable private equity team, sure, I'm not going to argue against that. Yeah. But I would argue that, that statistically it seems to me likely that, you know, the odds, the odds there's, there's probably just as much very ordinary performers out there as there are good performers, mm. frankly. Mm. And uh, look at all the private equity that tipped money into – uh, things when when free money was sloshing around there for a while and funding e-scooters and you know, <laughs> all this stuff that just ended up in rivers and just mm. just just blew up a bunch of capital. I being really harsh here. I just think I think, and I know I always say it. You know, keep it simple. Simplicity is really your friend here. Mm. You know, I, I look on your deathbed if you've if you've put all your money into a broad based single index ETF. And you look back on your life and go, wow, I got 7.5% compound over a lifetime. <laughs> could have I done better? Yeah, of course you could have. Is it a terrible result? Not really. Did you avoid a whole bunch of stress and, and unnecessary, you know, uh, false sophistication? You know, I just, how do you handicap yourself? That's the, yeah. that's the other thing you've got to ask here. Is, and I, I'm not tr trying to say this from, from my ivory tower. I've got, I wouldn't know where to start. I've been in this industry for, gosh, nearly 30 years now. I, I, know, I have no idea where I would even start. Mm. So if Kara has a, 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 an edge that she feels gives her the opportunity and the potential to identify the really great ones and invest in them directly – which is, again, probably not because there's all kinds of barriers <laughs> that, are, that are there, then by all means go for it. But I just don't feel as though it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary either, mate. I'm, I found some data, which is unusual for this podcast, but I did what oh. you were chatting. Um, this is a New York Times article about the US, so blah, blah, blah. It's also a bit older. So it's as of end of September 2020 is the most recent data that was published. It was published the end of December 2021. So there's probably more recent data out there, but I haven't seen it. Just quote New York Times. Quote, as of September 2020, private equity funds had produced a 14.2% median annualized return net of fees over the previous 10 years compared with 13.7% for the S&P 500, end quote. Now, a couple of things. First is that's an outperformance for private equity, which is great by a bit. Uh, second thing I would mention, though, is that's a median return. I was going to say, that's not yes. an average return. Right. And so the median return, now it's, uh, medians are 
generally better than averages when you're talking about some data sets. For example, you know, average incomes between me and Kerry Packer, or not Kerry anymore, James Packer, don't matter much because the average isn't very useful. Uh, someone's very rich and someone's not, and the other one's me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there, there's that. But uh, median does mean there's a broad range outside that. Now, I don't know why they've chosen median. They just have. That's not necessarily bad. But just bear in mind, we're looking at different things here. An average S&P 500 is the average of all the companies, not the median company on the AS, on the S&P 500. Lies, average. damn lies, and statistics. Well, this article is actually not trying to overrate it. Though. So this uh, overstate it. This article is actually mm-hmm. trying to say it's not as great as people thought. So they're not trying to overstate it. They're saying, hey, it's roughly the same and you know what you're getting. Because that's my next point, Kira, is this is the median fund. Now, the fund themselves, the fund isn't the manager. So here's the thing. Normally, when you invest in private equity, this is there's massive amounts of disparate, disparate ways of investing in it. But normally, you give them your money. You lock it up for five to 10 years. They invest in a very specific subset fund. So it might be the Andrew Page uh, uh, investment fund number one, managed by Page Incorporated. So you're not investing in Page Incorporated, you're investing in the fund that Andrew Page Incorporated is running. So that one fund with a cash box and individual investments, which may or may not replicate what they did last time. In other words, it's really, 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 really hard to know how likely you are in advance to get anything like the average return. So when you see that how well Facebook's done or how well, uh, frankly, the guys who took Maya private, I think made a mozza, uh, even though they sold, sold, sold a dog back onto the ASX, mm-hmm. you can see those numbers. You can't see A, how representative it is and B, whether or not the next fund you invest in, which is going to be a very specific, you can't invest like an ETF style thing in, in lots of funds or in, you know, you're investing in one fund with the funds locked up for years, hoping it's a Facebook, hoping it's not a insert company here milk run for example the the one hour delivery mob that went broke recently um you know those are the sorts of things you're you're taking the risk on so i would say i would not do private equity because the one thing the asx gives you is either the etf opportunity and i know you wanted us not to say just get an etf so i won't even though andrew did uh but the other thing is you can do your research on individual asx listed companies based on their background based on the current price based on their products based on what you know as opposed to sending someone a check and saying, I hope you find the next Facebook. So that's, I, I wouldn't, uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily, I'm not saying you can't, I'm not saying some people won't make money doing it. I just don't think you can get access to sufficient uh, data and to give yourself a, a, an edge, a sense you're definitely doing the right thing. Now you mentioned at the end, by the way, you talk about the um, the boys club and the old money thing. I think that's the, that's the, impression that they give they frankly want to right because if you make it sound exclusive then everybody wants in you and i want to get access to the things that only the old boys network can get access to and i get that i would just you finish by saying going back to the original numbers in the us for the decade until september 2020 the pe market there was roughly the same close enough to the same as the rest of the equity markets so there is no special old boys club where the results are 20 25 percent uh it was about the same as the average market return with a probably a very big disparate difference um, and unless you know you're getting the upside of that, you may get the downside of that median. And so you're kind of putting your eggs in one basket, hoping that you're above average rather than below average. And that's generally speaking, a, 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 it's it's not a probabilistic way to approach investing in my view. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey um, let's get a question from a question. Someone doesn't give their... Uh, Give their information. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for your service, says our unknown questioner. Please advise, knowing if I take your advice and lose money, it's all my fault. Is an asset turnover ratio of 18 bad? 
Now, it's uh, it's an interesting question to ask as an absolute number. Let's go back to asset turnover ratio. We don't talk about ratios very often on this podcast, Ram, because, uh, well, frankly, they're not very exciting radio, but it is important stuff. So can you share with our listeners what asset turnover ratio measures and then whether it, a number, uh, any given number is good or bad? I don't even know. What is it? Like, the, is 18% over, the, is it over a defined time frame so of 18, one year? 18 times. Let me, let me do, the, let me do the, uh, the thing. I've got it here in front of me. Total asset turnover equals net sales divided by the average total assets. Now, ignore average for now. They use the beginning asset, end asset to average those. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant it within a portfolio. Okay, sorry. Sorry, you think about portfolio turnover. So asset asset turnover is sales divided by assets. And the idea basically is if you can do a lot of sales with not many assets, that's a good thing. And it is, right? If I, if I can, like a software company, if, if, I can, if I can sell something without having to actually spend any money to create the thing I'm selling, that's great. If I have to build massive big steel mills, then it's, it's a measure of capital intensity. How much money do I have to put to work to make the sale is really what, the, what this is measuring. Right. Gotcha, so 18, yeah. I've I, I got to say to you, honestly, an unknown questioner, I don't know the actual answer. I don't, I don't have a frame of reference for what's good and bad in an absolute sense in terms of turnover other than higher is better than lower. 18 would suggest to me you've got a pretty capital light business, generally speaking, because if you can put a dollar of assets and make $18 worth of sales, that's a, that's a pretty good starting point, generally speaking. So I would think that was probably better than average, but without any way of absolutely knowing for sure. Um, I don't use it. Frankly, I don't use it as something that I think is important. It, the, what it shows you is other things I do look at, which is capital intensity or uh, returns on equity, for example, or assets would give you similar results. Uh, the reason I don't use it is because it uses sales rather than profits. And if I could do $18 of sales, but uh, my gross margin was 1% on that $18 worth of sales, I'd rather have $9 worth of sales at an 80% gross margin. I'd simply get more profit per dollar of sales, and so I'd get pr- more profit per dollar of assets. So I would personally use um, a return on assets measure if you wanted to use the assets as the base, uh, or some other return on equity, uh, profit margins, there's other things I would use instead of asset turnover. That's just my, my personal view. Rab, do you have a, a similar or yeah. different one? Yeah, no, I, I think that's about right. It, it's also, it's that frustrating answer of it depends. What's, what, what kind of business are we talking about? Some businesses, it'll make no sense whatsoever. Like it's just a, a nonsense kind of number. Um, I, I, think, I think I like to see things where it is relevant that you see consistency or hopefully even improvement over mm. time. That's a really great, that's a really great sign. Mm. Um, I think all investors start as you, as you go on this journey, we all start with the idea of I'm just going to collect lots of data and crunch lots of numbers and mm. scan lots of markets and find the one that has the best set of metrics. Mm. Um, a lot of us do that. I know you did. I certainly did. Yeah, yeah, totally. And for most part, I think you tend to graduate from that unless what you are, you turn what might be a factor investor and you sort of Ben Graham style it where you do it over literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies <laughs> and just try and play, play a statistical sort of yeah. game, yeah. which isn't really practical for the private investor. Mm. So it's, it's not, there's not enough signal in the output yeah. given all the variability that, mm. that, that you will see within just the one metric and the fact that you really want to look at things holistically as well. So you can have companies that might have a fantastic asset turnover ratio, but just on every other metrics, really bad one. So it's just, there's no, there's no formula that exists that will, or, or, or combination of metrics that exist that will always point you in the right direction. Mm. 
the, the, the way I think about it, I think the, that demonstrates that the most easily is that if that was true, you would have the JP Morgans of this world with a whole, you know, mm. floor of their glass tower decked out with supercomputers and PhDs doing exactly that. Yeah. That's in fact, right. in fact, a few of them do. And in fact, the very fact that they do that arbitrage the opportunity <laughs> away so it doesn't exist. Correct. Yes. Although we're back, we, back to the, we go back to the $20 economist thing we mentioned on Friday. I mean, just because someone's doing it doesn't mean it's not there. We shouldn't assume that just because an opportunity is there, maybe someone else has done it. Buffett and Munger have been doing their exact thing for 55 years and no one's arbitraged that away yet. Yeah, well, that's, that is true. That is true. So I'm not saying don't look at it. Look at it. You know, where it, makes, where it makes sense to, to, to look at it. 100%. And it, but, but again, it's more... It's more in the, it's more in that direction, mm. and it's more as one part of a very large sort of puzzle. Um, mm. So yeah, it, it's what can I say? Um, the, the 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 problem that you'll have with a lot of these things too is that they're they're always backwards looking. So you get last year's uh, a revenue right, and the assets that are on the balance sheet that time. It's like well. Mm. What actually assets am I going to include in this? There'll be some assets that probably don't make any sense. Some intangible assets that really aren't relevant to this. You know, inventory is probably a better asset um, line item that you want to factor in to this kind of stuff. And then, then you think, well, why don't I just use inventory turnover? And then, and then you start. And this is what I see a lot of investors do. They, they sort of cut it and slice it and dice it in a way that they find <laughs> that, that it is relevant to them. Yeah. But it just it gets it just gets it just gets a little bit messy. So there's no. I know the, the the tempting answer to give is like, oh, it's very important. Always look for something that's above fifteen. Yeah, that, that's that's the nice answer, right? Um, it just doesn't work. And there'll be companies, and again, I don't want to mention names here, but there's one that I'm particularly fond of at the moment, which historically speaking, it's pretty ordinary on this metric. I haven't even done the numbers, but I can I know from the what the balance sheet <laughs> and the income statement look, it's pretty ordinary. But they're in the process of rolling out a um, a strategy where there's all kinds of uh, things happening under the hood, which kind of obfuscates what's really going on. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely want to see improvement in that. And they've started calling out some some areas where they have shown improvement in in their inventory turnover and the uh, efficiency that is that is that is there. Yeah. Uh, I'm rambling at, at this point. It's just it's take take it as a data point. Interesting. How does it compare to where we've gone? Where do I think it should be? Maybe look at some peers and then put that as one piece in a much larger puzzle. I like it, mate. Um, I've got a question from Marcus, who, uh, this was a month or so ago, so he was talking before, uh, he says, I hear our minister says we are squirreling away our funds and we should spend it. But isn't that what we should do and save for a rainy day? I hope the boss comments on the minister's speech. I'm not sure who the boss is, but uh, I think we've kind of covered that. Um, spending the future fund is just madness. It wasn't, by the way, uh, the minister. It was a the shadow treasurer, I think, from memory. No, it was a, it was a think tank. Um, although the shadow treasurer did say the treasurer was spending too much time thinking about the long term, which I, I frankly thought was a little bit bananas. Um, he does now. say, and this is this is a this feels like a, a Dorothy Dixon, but I promise it's not. He says, um, uh, Scott, thanks for the super advice. As my wife was asking, I can't remember what we said, but what can the fools offer? Paid advice, of course. He says, when we retire with our super, I'd really like to live on the interest from my capital, and if not enough, I will work. Uh, I will earn some. That's work for it. He says, um, we do have a service called Everlasting Income. 
you want to know more about it, email us and we'll, we'll sort out some information for you. That's, I don't want to do a massive plug, but uh, that's exactly, we have a service designed exactly for that, Marcus, um, which is designed to turn a portfolio into an income stream. Um, so I will, I will answer your question, but not, not with a lot of detail, not for a long time, because that's just a bit sucky. I'm not here to plug our services. Um, one from, but thanks for asking, mate. I appreciate it. One from John. Hi, Scott and Andrew. At 55, I am a Gen Xer. I just miss, missed out on being a loathsome boomer. <laughs> it says in brackets, aimed at Andrew. There you go, mate. <laughs> Gen X that's is what's... the best generation, though. It really is. Like, and the most, under, the most overlooked. Yeah. Always boomers and millennials, boomers and millennials. What about us? What about exactly. us, Andrew? Exactly. That movie pictures weren't wrong when they're saying, what about me in the early 80s? That's an anthem, <laughs> anthem for our generation. If you don't understand what, what, what about me is, then don't worry about it. You're either too young or too old. And we don't care. We're Gen X. <laughs> um, uh, John says, I've also just found your mailbag podcast. What a revelation it is. Listening to you and Andrew. Is this your Uncle John, mate, or mine? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I'll take it either way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Holy Dooley, he says, how you guys talk about the topics of the day for so long and keep it interesting is amazing. Going off on so many tangents, but still managing to come back to the original point. Thank you, mate. We do our best. I have a little thought bubble for discussion, says John. These wealthy boomers with multiple properties and money in the bank will not be with us forever. And when they do leave us, they will leave their remaining assets to their children, who will in turn give a substantial share of those assets to their children. In other words, the millennials. So the millennials could then become the most affluent generation. What do you think? What do you think, Andrew? Well, this is a very big question because you kind of get to, you kind of wade unintentionally so into ideological waters. <laughs> yes, you do. Do you want a society that is very merit-based in terms of your abilities and efforts and risks taken? Or do you just want to have your station in life determined mm. by what grandma and granddad did? You know, um, I I don't know. I always you know, I'm just going to instantly annoy half the audience. I sort of <laughs> say what I I prefer, but go on. Uh, I I think, I mean, I I think it's very natural. It's very human. It's very loving. In fact, to want to build enduring generational wealth for you and yours, like you do. I want to look after my kids and mm. they're my grandkids and so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, I don't want to. I don't want to um, ever have them in a situation. What's Buffett say? You want your kids to have enough money that mm. they can do whatever they want, but not so much that they to can do anything, do but not to do nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you tend to you tend to see. I mean, what's the old saying? Is that the first generation makes it, the second keeps it, <laughs> the third loses it? Yep, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yep. It happens, right? And it, yep. it, it's because you sort of over time you forget yeah. the value of the dollar and. Uh, you, you start to take it for granted. You, you start to see your position yeah. as some specific exceptionalism to, to, <laughs> to your family lineage. And it gets all very aristocratic very, yes. very quickly. So I tend to err a little bit on the side of um, inheritance tax. You know, I, yeah. I think it's um, without, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily a black and white, you know, like tax everything as soon as someone dead and take, take every, all of their assets <laughs> away versus nothing. I, I don't even know what, I, it's, it's way too complex for me to even, yeah. and I haven't thought deeply enough about it, but there are, but they're the kind of questions you're getting at here. So yeah. I, I do think, I do think, uh, I certainly, I look, I, so I, I, I work from home. I, 
I go for a walk each day because otherwise I just get deep vein thrombosis sitting <laughs> at a desk all day. <laughs> and I live in an area mm. where I all it's once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. I walk past all these older people who living in these assets that must be worth three or four million dollars if they're if they're a dollar. You know, like mm. they're just they're all falling down. Um, they're out the front in shoes with holes in them and just like asset rich cash poor. Yeah. You think, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, yeah. buy a Ferrari and go to town, but it's just sort of like, I think some, unfortunately the chains of habit are too lightly felt until they're too heavy to be broken to, to quote Buffett again. Yeah. And, and you, it, it, you, I feel as though there's some people are just, bad at living at a certain point like you <laughs> you 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 save up and you yeah. build this wealth through a life of prudence and hard work and sacrifice yeah and then it's 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 become so central to your your modus operandi mm. that you actually like you know even if you feel as though you're going to live for another 30 years you could live a very very comfortable lifestyle and leave some for your kids and here you are eating cat food, shivering in the cold. Like, what are you doing? Like, so there's a balance to be struck here as well. I get that people are right to sort of say, I want to live off the income. That's my goal too. Like, I just just for the flexibility of, of totally. and the optionality of, of things. That's a very mm -hmm. noble kind of thing. But mm -hmm. um, not all of us are going to be able to do that. And I think you want to strike a right balance. So you're only here, depending, unless you believe in reincarnation. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, and even then, if you do, you, how do you how do you transfer the wealth to to whatever thing you reincarnate? Like mm. you know, a few spins around the sun, and you want to enjoy yourself. I think. I I, I don't know. Am I being too? I think people, right. people who save too, you can get too hard. You can be too hard on this front, and then give it to someone, and then your kids are just gonna you know yep. throw it up against the wall, and it's like for what? I don't know. I think you did right, mate. I think um, so. A couple of things. Back to the question. Um, just for the yeah, sorry, um, sorry, way off topic. <laughs> that's good. It's good. Um, so I think um, the million, the boomers are probably the wealthiest generation ever because of the way that our society has evolved. I'm getting back to your point, Andrew, and to the questioner's point. And I think it's likely that most of that the wealth as a, as a group will get passed down to the generations yes because they're not going to spend it before they die because a lot of it's captured in housing and fixed assets and share portfolios and we have been able to as a society store more wealth than ever i think in monetary terms so i think that's that's probably true as it goes down the generations frankly a lot of that wealth's going to be used to pay off debts <laughs> We've talked about house prices before, and I'm going to try and keep Andrew between the, the red and yellow lines or whatever <laughs> to, to make sure we don't get off the off course here. Um, the, uh, so I think that that's, that's also probable. And so not as much absolute wealth will end up getting passed down because a lot of what we used to pay off debt. Now, that's kind of a function of wealth, I guess. If you have less debt, you're then wealthier because you're less indebted. But, you know, so there's some of that. Uh, won't necessarily go down the same size and quantum. And then to the millennials, as you rightly point out with your question, I actually share, so that, that at a generational level, that's, I think the answer, I think you're right, John. I think that's exactly what will happen. Now, that'll keep going though, to the next generation, the one after that, one after that. So is it consequential that they're the most, most wealthy generation? No, eventually in time that will happen because that's how these things will cascade. My biggest issue is absolutely Andrew's issue. I am increasingly 
Am I in favor of it yet? Probably, yeah. I probably am in favor of inheritance taxes. I call them death taxes if you want. Let's let's really ramp up the the uh, hyperbole <laughs> and and uh, and uh, pejoratives, um, the hyperbole, as the kids say. Uh, because I have a I, I, Andrew's kids will be fine. My kids will be fine. Um, we, as long as I don't, you know, get hit by a truck and do something stupid in my portfolio, between my super and my wife's super and the money we put aside separately, our kids will be fine. They won't be squillionaires. They won't be millionaires. They'll be fine. Uh, and as Andrew says, I want to look after my family. So I'm going to do that. Selfish, I'm going to do that. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, so it'll be fine. If I look at my, some of my kids' mates, if I look at some of my extended family's uh, family and, and their friends, there are people who don't have, by virtue of accident of birth, being able to be born in the right places with the right skills, have the right life experiences, and be in the right places at the right times to earn the right amount of money, they won't have that same ability to look after their kids the way I can with mine. Again, I'm not a squillionaire. I'm not going to be passing on, you know, yachts and, and second house. I have one house. I have a share portfolio. That's it. I have a couple of cars. Um, but we will hopefully die with enough money that my kids are fine and their kids are fine. Others won't have that opportunity. Now think about, we've talked about compounding before. Imagine compounding not for 10 years or 40 years. Imagine compounding for 40 years or 80 years in terms of family wealth. And think about not compounding for 80 years. Now, cast this forward to 2030. Uh, let's go for 2120 or 2110. Let's go, let's go 90 years. In 2110, unless my kids do a stupidly terrible job of this, there's a decent chance that they will be able to pass on inherited generational wealth for multiple generations. Now, if they have 85 kids and give it all to charity and go live in a, you know, a... Um, where do you live if you're a Buddhist, Andrew? Is it a, is it a temple? Somewhere like that, anyway. I guess You so. only live one of those places, Simon. A kibbutz somewhere. Anyway, you go live in one of those places and you give it all away, then maybe not. But if I'm able to give something to my kids and they can use that and give it to their kids and their kids and their kids, my, my descendants will have a better chance than the descendants of someone listening to this podcast who is on minimum wage, who has not been able to save any money because of circumstances and who has seven kids. Now, is that fair? Well, on one hand, is it fair because I worked hard and I deserve to be able to give some money to my kids? Yes. Is it fair that their kids start off behind the eight ball and their kids and their kids and their kids are even further and further behind the eight ball because my kids and my grandkids' eight ball gets pushed further away or further ahead? No, it's absolutely not. So although I'd be a beneficiary of, and my kids would be a beneficiary of no inheritance taxes, I really desperately, I think one of the biggest long-term social trends we're not talking about right now is inherited inequality. And that scares the hell out of me for our society. It makes me sad for people who won't have that opportunity when others around them will have that opportunity. And we will end up stratifying the society the way that feudal England, frankly, and, and you know, um, pre, pre uh, what is it is, you know, uh, pre-consolidation Germany, right? The fiefdoms of Germany. Why don't we end up in that situation? Well, I don't know, but I don't know that we won't. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be that bad, but I think it's a real issue. I think it's a real risk. I think as a society, we owe it to our descendants and frankly, not our descendants, the descendants of other people. You know, if we believe that, if we believe in anything about equality, about a fair go, about an even start, about if you can make, you know, if you work hard enough, you can make it. If you start with a million dollars or start with zero, I guarantee you can't end up in the same place more often than not. And mm. that's not reasonable. So I, I think we should be talking about it. There you go. How's I think that the, I love that. I, I think the, the best thing you can leave your kids is um, a good education, not necessarily a formal one, but mm -hmm. just... It's the whole teacher, teach a man to fish versus give the man a fish. Yes. Yeah. If I had a choice between, and it's I could never, I can't see a situation where it's a binary choice like this, but I can either leave my kids a million dollars each in yep. today's purchasing power, or I can make sure that when I leave this mortal coil that they are well-schooled 
in the idea of of uh, wealth creation. Yeah, you know that I'd much prefer the former. You know, the latter. Sorry, the latter. <laughs> um, yeah. Yep. You know, it just the, 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 that, that's, yeah. that's something I think we, is, is something that all of us can do, no matter of your circumstances. And, and you will find that it is, is the most powerful thing that you, you can pass on is really, really good principles. And start early, I think. Um, mm. It'd be really annoying because kids don't listen. <laughs> I, I didn't. <laughs> that's, a, that's the hardest part. <laughs> do you know what, mate? I actually agree with the latter point. I disagree with the former. Oh, yeah? If I, if I could, if I, well, I mean, assuming they didn't blow the million bucks. I, I just think I just think, but the, they will if they don't have the if they don't have the right. Well, I guess mindset. that's true, right? But but it, but if that's you know you're right. If if they're gonna blow it anyway, of course that's true. Yeah. But I don't think you need you don't even with a million dollar head start you don't need to be a financial genius because you bought your house. Yeah. I mean well, that that well, that'll where are you buying can, a house? <laughs> well, not, well, not where you live, obviously. No, uh, not not all of us can live in your part of the world. No, but, you know, but but seriously, if you think about that, imagine imagine going through life from day one or, or eighteen, having never had to pay a dollar of rent or a dollar of mortgage. That, I mean, that, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal head start that, you know, if you give them that, you give them that. Mm-hmm. If you start without that and say, here's how hard you need to work to get close and then you compound those things, that's what I mean about the inequality thing of like, mm-hmm. I take your point, in a perfect world, you'd rather give them, you know, the ability to, to compound their money and make more money than, than have a start. But it's not necessarily binary, right? If you get both, if you, if you could teach a kid with nothing the same lessons as a kid with a million dollars, the kid with a million bucks still makes a squillion dollars and the other kid probably just manages to compound enough over time. Oh, That's yeah. what I mean about the, the the unfairness of the or the inequality of the starting point. I tell you what, though, if I won Powerball this week or whatever it is, sixty yeah. million dollars, something Was like it? that, the kids would still be getting a job when they're old enough. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. they'd be paying me rent for as long as they want to live at home. Yeah, you're you know, right, you're, you're I just would. And then maybe at yeah, thirty yeah. or something, they might get a bit of a chunk, and they'll hate me for it <laughs> at least initially. <laughs> but I, I, it's you know, it's a bit of tough love. I I, I, I just. You know, I agree. everyone listening to this knows exactly what we're talking about. I mean, think yep. think of that person that you know has had everything handed to them on a silver plate. They're mm-hmm. they're not a pleasant individual, and they're certainly yep. not grateful. And it, it's it's like, gosh, I wouldn't I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Andrew, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Without you jumping on the example and instead sticking with the uh, concept of the question? Well, no promises, but I'll try. Andy, this may be the last question I ever ask on your behalf on the podcast. <laughs> Hi, Scott and Andrew. This is Andy. I've been listening to the pod since 2019 when I first started my investing journey. I try to follow your common sense investing principles of spending less than you earn and investing a bit every month into your best idea. But herein lies my problem. My first, second, and third best idea recently all seem to be Bitcoin. I started buying about a year ago, and my Bitcoin holding is becoming larger and larger in allocation in my portfolio. With the expected arrival of Bitcoin spot ETFs in the US next year, the upcoming halving in April next year, and constantly increasing adoption of hash rates, I'm finding it hard to buy anything else. <laughs> Now, here's the question, Andrew, which is not about Bitcoin. It's what I'm going to ask you to turn your attention to. When is a single allocation percentage too high? And when should you look at investing in your fourth or fifth best idea? How far down your list of ideas should you go? Thanks, Andy. I will give you about 31 seconds to talk about Bitcoin, Andrew, and then I will ask you to turn your attention to the actual question. I won't won't go down. Can I I say, actually, someone asked about the other day, and I said, actually, me and Scott did an episode on that earlier this year. Nice. And... um, 
I just listened to the start because I thought, oh, if I am, what have I said here that, you know, because your thinking evolves over time. Yeah, I know. I think it actually held up pretty well. I don't think oh, my, nice. my well thinking has changed. So I just, I would ask people to sort of search out on, on the podcast uh, machine, search it out and just listen to that. That'll, yep. that'll give you my thoughts on it. Nicely. Um, I do know that, oh, gosh, it's a problem, Andy. Like it's a mind virus and like you start off, start <laughs> off you start laughing at it and you go, huh. Yeah, maybe I Actually. should have a one percent allocation. <laughs> yeah. you go, hmm, is one percent enough though? And it just, it, you know, it's it is a it. it is a sickness for want love of a better it, term. It. And 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 I, I I've actually had my wife say enough. <laughs> no more, Andrew. No more. Oh, but no you more think no more buying? We could just uh, uh, both. <laughs> oh, it's really hard. So. I've actually, I've actually found some Bitcoin friends, so we just, we just talk to, talk to <laughs> no ourselves, like and it. we, we save like everyone it. else. The, uh, I like the it. so I do, Andy. I feel you, man. I feel you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I definitely think that the weighting should be a function of conviction. Okay. And Buffett and Munger were asked this at one of their more recent AGMs. And someone said, how much is too much? And Buffett yeah. said, we, every now and again, come across an idea that is so wonderful yeah. that if we didn't have billions and billions and we were just managing our own money, we'd go 100% in okay. because it's just a fat pitch. And yeah. they, they, they don't come along that often. And he said, that goes against every principle that <laughs> modern finance will teach you yeah. because it's, it seems risky. But it, it, it does rest on the, and you, this is where you've got to be honest with yourself of genuinely understanding it and 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 and, yeah. and and recognizing that it is a, indeed a fat pitch and it's not something that looks really good but is actually terrible but it and that's very hard to get very hard to get that level of and that conviction. is and that is hard mate because i think that's my biggest concern when we say things like that to people and you're not wrong and buffer's not wrong but you've got to have high conviction and be right yes <laughs> and, and you know that's and that seems obvious and it seems true and it seems real and there were people who had a huge conviction in and then insert, you know, frankly, non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies or, yeah. you know, terrible stocks that had a great story or, yeah. and you go, oh man, Enron had such a great story and I just, I, had, I did all the research and I just thought this was going to be the best thing ever and I had such high conviction I put my entire portfolio in it. Yep. And it's like, you know, so, so how do so you- So you got to be, you, you got to have conviction and be right. So, okay, so, yeah. so answer that question for me. How, how do you, how do you, how do you put those two things together how do our listeners put those two things together by trying to back their conviction, but also recognizing that unlike Buffett, we are not geniuses and maybe we're wrong sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I never go to hundred percent, you know, I just, I, I don't, um, I, 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 I very much try to steal man the idea, you know, and I, and I, I tried to say, what does a mistake look like? Yeah. You'd be surprised how often, like everything's 2020 in hindsight, but you'd be surprised <laughs> if you're open, if you're genuinely objective yeah. and open-minded, like everyone says, oh, I'm really interested to know what the other side thinks, you know, no, you're not. You want, you want confirmation bias like we all do. Yeah. Um, you'd be surprised, like you, you think of all the major blow-ups mm. on the ASX over whatever period you want, there, there were always signs, right? Now that doesn't mean that, the, oh, it was definitely going to go bad. But every time you sort of see these red flags, it does, it should at the very least entice you to lower that weighting, you know? So I, I try and revisit 
my thinking on a regular basis. Usually when new information mm. comes to light, you go, huh, I thought this, do I still think that? And that's very hard to do because we are so emotionally attached to our ideas. <laughs> <laughs> There's a company at the moment I hold, which I can't fault too much, but gosh, it's at a two-year low at the moment. You think, what's going on with it? I don't, mm. feels as though you're executing well. And okay, there's a few sort of issues here and there. And mm. But overall, it's, you know, like what, and, and I, I, I don't go 100% into it because like, well, I'm not yeah. that sure, <laughs> right? They're sure not and they're sure, yeah. They're yeah, sure yeah. and then, then there's, they're sure. Yeah. But on a risk-adjusted basis, you know, on a, on a valuation basis, it started mm. getting more and more. All else being equal, it's just more compelling. So I will increase the weight. I have increased the weighting recently. And, and I just try and I try – there's no exact formula to use here, but it is, you know, just being honest, understanding what a mistake looks like, continually trying to destroy your own ideas. That's the real skill here. Just like, how am I wrong? I see, and this is why I always think it's worth before you buy anything, write out what, what a mistake looks like and what would cause you to sell or at least de-weight, de if that's a term. Um, <laughs> it is now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really giving a satisfying answer here, but uh, you go for it. What do you think? No, I, think it's, I think it's a great answer, mate. Um, <laughs> I've happily I will, held. I have happily held yeah. in previously forty percent. Yeah, I, I think there's conviction, and there is. I think well, I'm going to break conviction up into two things. One is the chances you're right, and the other is the chances you're wrong. And I, I, that, that's obviously the same thing. What I guess I mean is, hey, this thing looks too cheap to be true. I can't see anything wrong with it. Therefore, I should buy it. That's that's the conviction being right. The other is how badly could i be wrong and if i am wrong how much is this going to hurt yeah so my two largest positions are berkshire hathaway and washington h sol pattinson they are the most boring businesses in the entire world they are also run by spectacularly great management teams long company cultures massively diversified businesses where if i'm wrong about buffett and he's not, not no longer a genius he owns you know 10 percent of apple and 10 percent of coke and you know 80 in, in businesses we talk about it yeah the operating businesses of berkshire will be completely fine even if even if buffett if buffett disappeared tomorrow went walk about for a month a year t 10 years never came back berkshire be completely fine hmm. so pat similarly rob Mellon is a great guy I'm glad he's running the company um like him a lot as an investor and as a person if he you know was to not ever buy and make another acquisition or, or purchase the business has internal businesses. It has listed you know, wholly owned companies. It has uh, equity stakes in, in controlling stakes and non-controlling stakes in other companies. It'll be completely fine. So I hold those shares because I believe the, t the business is likely to be outperforming for years to come, uh, for hopefully decades to come. And also, if I'm wrong, the downside is reasonably small. Now, I could, I could have a higher commission on the upside potential of something else. Uh, I'll get another example. Corporate travel management, business I own. We talked about before. Uh, I, I think that's got a better upside potential than Solpats or Berkshire because Solpats and Berkshire are massive. They're reasonably pedestrian. They're conglomerates. They're not going to be able to shoot the lights out in a single category because it's not what they're trying to do. And so they'll, I think it'll beat, they'll beat the market. I think corporate travel's got a much better chance of beating the market. However, if uh, their customers found a better online solution, if they made some badly priced acquisitions, if their customers left for a better idea, if, 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 there's a much bigger downside for corporate travel than there is for these other two. So I don't own as much corporate travel as I do for the other two, even though I think the upside is higher. 
So I, I don't like the phrase risk adjusted because academics use it to mean other yeah. things that it shouldn't actually mean. I actually love but I, it, but I hate the yes, way the academics oh, yes, exactly, use it. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, that's right. But I, I don't use it generally because it, it, when you then look that up in the on the online or in something else, you'll think them they're, they're saying what I'm saying, which is different. So um, anyway, long story short, uh, combination for me of well, all conviction of Ram's point, I 100 agree. I just make sure I include both the upside and the downside, and there's no surprise my largest holdings are the ones with the the lowest potential downside because I'm putting uh, yeah I own jeez uh, Berkshire is probably twenty percent of my portfolio Solpats might be twelve thirteen um, but I wouldn't own that of an, an individual company that I you had know, single business line with many meaningful downside risk. Do you know it, it's sort of like if you look at well again strawman.com forward slash strawman you'll see you won't see the names they'll be blanked out for the free mm. accounts but one two three four four stocks make up half of my weighting 50 percent in four nice. stocks yep one is 18 fine if you know what you're doing right i by, you know, by the way can i just say quickly i yeah. don't think most people listening should do the same thing because you've been doing this for 30 years you just said so sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna just I'm gonna just bracket that with I think Ram's perfectly safe to do it. Mine's probably actually slightly higher than that if I add up those top three I just talked about. Uh, or maybe not. Anyway, um, but I don't know that someone who's been investing for a year should pick four companies and put fifty percent of their assets into them. You know that knowing that they know that they know they're half good at this thing. Yeah, diversification is a hedge against ignorance, and not not yes. in a mean sort of prerogative and way. Yeah, it's just yeah, and it's it's just you know know thyself, and and like if you decide that today I am going to take up juggling, you're just gonna suck at it. You're and just don't start with knives it. or chainsaws. Yeah, does, exactly. You know, oh, I've been juggling for thirty years. <laughs> yeah. All right, I, I might I might add an extra ball or two, or maybe a chainsaw. You know, <laughs> yeah, he says juggling with chainsaws is fine, so I should do it too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. And I also think too is is I think it's it's a question of years, but it's also mm. a question of cycles. I think. Yeah. Point, you yeah. need to go through, gosh, I don't know. There's no hard number, but I would. You want to go through a few bear markets and some big that's ones. That's a great point to make. I love you that. Know? Yes, that's exactly right. Because because we're all geniuses in a bull market. Like yes. we all are. You know, I, I I tell often a story of a friend of mine who started in 2006. I want to say, <laughs> and in the lead up to the GFC, just like 10x his money. Right. He's like, this is best thing ever. This is the <laughs> why did and he was trading with CFDs oh, and just okay. took his money and just ten X it. Yeah. He, he could have retired yeah. as a very young man. And the long story is is that he's just like, Well, if I'm doing this well with what I started oh, with, yeah. imagine if I it's it's like doubling, you know, at the pokies, yep. like double yep. it, yep. double it, double it, double it. You know, it's just it's the exponential yep. Yep. <laughs> characteristic to it. Well, he lost it all. Right, like times he, zero is still zero, right? Uh, you know, and, and it's sort of, I feel as though you need to have looked the devil in the eyes. I felt mm. his breath on your neck <laughs> and had that sort of dark, you know, loneliness of, of the soul, you know, and, and to, to have gone through that, not just once or twice, a few mm. times. And then you, that, you become very battle hardened and it is, and then you just become better and better and better and better at it. And it's, it's a, you can't rush it, right? You just can't rush it. So, so don't feel as though having listened to this conversation that the right answer for me is X. <laughs> it will depend on where you are, start yes. out and then, and then evolve as you, as your, as your confidence and your, and your, and your experience uh, determines. Um, I love the one that, thing, yeah. I, the one thing I will say, but we've got to move on is, is the, I think we as investors, we focus very heavily on the income statement. In other words, we look a lot at 
revenue and sales mm. and earnings per share, as we should, right? Like at the end of the day, we're trying to find good cash flow generating machines, profit machines, right? Mm, mm. Um, too often we overlook the balance sheet. And you reminded me when you were talking about uh, Berkshire and, and Solpats and that, like the thing is with companies like that is that there are some companies out there that even if things really go pear-shaped, you've got a great sort of, for want of a better term, level of support in the actual hard, real assets that underpin it. Whenever we do have a surprise shock, um, the only surprise you should have is that there is a shock, really. (laughs) Let me reframe that. If you're surprised that there is a shock, well, that's surprising. There there will always be a a shock. And you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Mm. And and, and what I can guarantee you is is that the next recession, let's say we have a brutal recession. Let's call it a depression, right? Everyone's going to suffer. Tide's going to go way out. The best of the best businesses aren't going to do that that great. Mm. But the ones that have a very uh, minimal debt and very strong um, cash reserves will survive. They'll survive and they'll come out the other end of it. If you're, if you are, we are finding this out now in 2023. I think the last 12 months have been a real masterclass in when the free money dries up, how robust are you as really as an operation? And there are companies out there that only survive by the good grace of investors. Like, oh, we've spent all our money. Can we raise some money again? Yeah, of course you can. And you can raise it at a really high valuation. Boom, yeah. we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Oh, no one's in the mood to do that anymore. Oh my gosh, we're in trouble. Yeah, you know, and, right. and you, you don't. So all I'm saying is if in, in trying to sort of uh, uh, measure that risk, you will all else being equal when the companies have very very strong balance sheets you you have far far less risk even though that the 12 month share price or the 12 month profit performance figures may may change drastically for the worse yeah um just quickly i don't want to get open this new uh, angle but uh jb hi-fi and harvey norman both trading on roughly the same PE. i think harvey's at 9.7 and jb is 10.4 or something for all intents and purposes close enough uh the difference is, and speaking of balance sheet, Harvey Norman has $4 billion, almost its entire market cap in property. <laughs> and I'm not saying that necessarily makes it a better investment. Uh, I own, uh, Harvey don't own JB, not just, just for that reason, by the way. Um, but you know, Harvey Norman's trading at 1.14 times book value. So basically you're buying the assets and getting the business for not much more. <laughs> uh, now, JB is trading at three and a half times book value. Now, I don't know what'll happen next. I don't know which company does better. They're both roughly the same PE. To your point though, mate, we say, David Jones and Maya used to be like this in the, in the old days. Yeah, I was uh, gonna where, mention that, yes. Right, yeah. these had a truckload of property. Maya had all this debt, they're on the same PE. And you kind of think, well, and people say to me, oh, they're, they're kind of the same, they're the same businesses. And I think JB's future is bright, so I'm buying JB. I'm like, that's cool, I get it. But two businesses in the same industry selling mostly the same products with roughly the same PE, very, 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 very different. Yep. organizational structures and again i don't want it doesn't matter which one you like most i'm just making the point that if everything goes to hell in a handbasket you know J- jb hi-fi is three and a half times asset value harvey norman's trading just a touch above asset value now those assets could be worth less if the, if they're not harvey norman stores aren't there maybe the assets are worth less all that kind of stuff yeah just as you say mate in the good times look at the uh, the, uh, the pnl in the bad times look at the balance sheet and it's just worth remembering if I, frankly, you know, I, you know, I buy, I own Harvey for that reason. I like JB a lot. I really do. It's a recommendation of ours. But those aren't the same businesses just because the PEs are identical. Yep. It matters. It matters. Look at that stuff. Yep. It really does. Hey, mate, really quick question to finish it off. Uh, one came from Frankie who says, Hi, I've got a question for the pod machine. Ram, telling you. 
You guys are always chatting about the value of dollar cost averaging. And I've seen the benefits in my own portfolio as a result. Excellent. Slow and steady each week, says Frankie. But I'm now wondering, as the portfolio grows, is it better to have one or two large holdings, and Frankie says ETFs, not individual shares, rather than several smaller ones? Does the power of compounding work better with, say, two $50,000 parcels rather than that same $100,000 across a portfolio? The total amount is the same, but does the input of, say, dividends, etc., on the larger amount make this a more efficient way of growing the portfolio? Love to hear your thoughts. Maths isn't the thing that makes the most sense to me. Uh, I'm like that in so many other things. Thanks for such great pods to look forward to every week. I've been with you since the beginning. Cheers, Frankie. Thanks, Frankie. That's awesome. Really appreciate it. Uh, different or the same, mate? Oh, it depends. <laughs> I, this is supposed to be a quick question. Sorry. Yeah, I, well, uh, I mean, it, it, it depends what the average is, right? Like, it, I, might have, I might have a company in there that's 100Xer. Yeah. And then a whole bunch that just lose 50%, you know, and, and yes. depending on the weightings, I'm still going to come out at a certain number and that number is, you know, going to be a, represent a compound annual growth rate of X over a set period of time. Yep. Is that better or worse than, you know, you can arrive at the same destination by two very different paths. Yep. Um, so there's no answer to this. I mean, is it, is it better that I have 10 stocks that all go up 10% exactly per year on average over time? Mm -hmm. Or is some, that 10% that is, is achieved via some weird and wacky combination? Uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've said before that, in fact, just earlier in this pod, that I mean, my own personal experience is that the average tends to be pretty decent, but yeah. gosh, within that, there's some horror stories <laughs> and then there's some things that, you know, look fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and the average is better than average. <laughs> so um, I'm happy with that. And that suits me as my temperament and my chosen style. Um, but I wouldn't advocate that for everyone. Mm. So uh, that's a hard one. What do you think? Yeah, I I have a feeling Frankie's asking a slightly different question, actually. So I'm going to answer the question. Oh, did I, I misunderstand? Okay. No, I don't think so. I, well, I don't know. I, I just did something different from it. So um, I will. Say, so I think Frankie's saying, is it better to have a couple of small bits and one big bit? Is there any efficiencies in having one big bit rather than smaller bits? So, so kind of an efficiency of an outcome kind of question. So Frankie, what I will say is Ram is absolutely right. It depends what you own. Uh, generally, more is better than less because you get the benefits of diversification as a general rule. Um, all else being equal, I would choose more rather than less. Thing is, not all else is equal. So, if you were to buy two identical ETFs, you might as well have one. There is no benefit in having two separate ones that are identical. That being said, there's no real cost either because all you're really looking at is transaction costs. You'll save a slight amount of money buying less frequently in larger bunches because the way brokerage works out, you just pay less as a percentage on, on a larger purchase. So that kind of works. But once you own them, it makes absolutely no difference. There's two bits of paperwork, but you're not paying a fee per holding, hopefully. Um, so yeah, it makes absolutely no difference. So don't, don't have more or fewer for the purposes of efficiency in the portfolio. Have more or fewer for the benefits of diversification, in my view. Mm, yeah, that's well put. Yeah. I don't reckon we've come to the end of our little road to, to not quote boys to men because again, unless you're a Gen X, you won't know that line. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was going to sing a line then. Yeah, I'm going. Go on. No, 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 no. Now no. that we've come to the end of the road, <laughs> we haven't come to the end of the road except for this podcast. The road continues long into the distance, but it won't be jumped back onto as I mangle the metaphor and desperately try and torture it until next Friday. Assuming, Andrew, you'll rejoin me on that journey. 
Well, mate, if we, if we keep getting Bitcoin questions, I'm here with bells on, but you know, or a chance to rent a property, you try and stop me. <laughs> so, dear listener, I will pretend that's absolutely possible. So, Ram will come back. Just don't tell him I said so. Uh, until next week, thank you for joining us and full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.